Hello and welcome to the podcast series on how to improve elections from the Electoral Integrity Project. Each episode features a new idea about how to improve elections based on academic research. My name is Toby James and I co-direct the Electoral Integrity Project with Holly Ann Garnett. Now, one of the basic features of democracy is widely thought is universal suffrage. Everyone should be able to vote. But in practice, not everyone can. In the last episode, we considered how under 18s, in most countries anyway, are not able to vote. And the case there was being made by our guest for lowering the voting age uh, in those countries. Um, but age is not the only area in which people are prohibited from voting. So with me today is Dr. Victoria Shinneman and Perhaps, Victoria, first of all, thanks ever so much for coming on to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's probably best if you give yourself your own introduction and how you got into this topic and interested in elections. Sure. Um, yeah, so hi, uh, my name is Victoria Shinneman. I'm a political scientist. I specialize in elections and political behavior. Um, I did my undergraduate at Reed College and I got my PhD at New York University. I was drawn to elections really early on. I remember as a college student, there were so many topics I was interested in affecting. And when I started to learn about elections, I realized if you can make elections better, you're affecting every other policy the government decides. It just, it felt like a very top of stream kind of approach. And as soon as I kind of realized that, I just, I got really interested in elections and um, I've been working in electoral policy ever since for about 20 years now. Brilliant. Um, so we're here today to talk about voting rights for people with previous criminal convictions. Um, and can you say something about the, obviously you're always keen to get the terminology right um, here, because sometimes you do hear people use the word felons, for example. Is there, is there a difference between voting for felons or voting for people with criminal convictions? So there's been an evolution in the terminology that's used. Uh, for many years, people would refer to citizens with a felony conviction as a felon or when they were in prison as inmate. What concern with that is that that equates their identity with their crime. Mm. And that somebody who was in prison and is released, they're not a felon, they're a person with a criminal conviction. Um, so what is the problem? Perhaps it's self-evident, but what is the problem that restoring voting rights to people with criminal conviction is trying to fix? Sure. I mean, so it's, yeah, around the world, the, the voting rights for people with criminal convictions vary quite a bit. Um, the United States is among democracies, the most strict democracy. In the US, the number of people denied the right to vote because of a former criminal record is extremely high. Um, so for example, in our most previous presidential election in 2020, there was more than 5 million American citizens who were not allowed to vote. Uh, what's even more alarming than the numbers is just that these laws were created to target certain populations. Um, that in the US, after the Civil War, when African-Americans were granted the right to vote, a lot of states changed their laws and they reclassified felony crimes. And they would reclassify crimes deliberately targeting the types of crimes that Black Americans were convicted for. And those tended to be crimes associated with poverty, uh, things like petty theft. And so these laws were put in many states deliberately to prevent Black people from voting. And if you look at the effects today, it, more than one third of those who are disenfranchised because of their criminal record are non-white American citizens. I mean, it introduces concerns for a number of reasons, right? First, there's 
just the idea of voter turnout and representation itself, uh, the idea that we're distorting electoral outcomes by not including everybody's opinions. And then even beyond elections and electoral outcomes, which is huge in and of itself, you know, even beyond that, taking away people's right to vote also affects people at an individual level. It makes people feel like they're second-class citizens or that they don't belong in society. And that can make it harder for people to re-enter society after being released from prison and to successfully reintegrate and you know, lead successful lives after, uh, after they're released from prison. Sure, thank you. And so one of the, some of the arguments that people would commonly kind of use to justify this, obviously politicians wouldn't say we're removing these voting rights to, to gain our own kind of political advantage. I mean, usually the arguments about kind of rights and responsibilities, someone should lose their right to vote because they've committed a particular crime. Is that the type of argument that's sometimes used? So some of the arguments people might reference the social contract, the idea that we are in a social contract and if you've broken the law, you no longer get the benefits of the society. But one other thing in the United States that's confusing is our voting rights vary by state dramatically. So in some states, for example, in Maine and Vermont, you can vote when you're in prison. You never lose the right to vote. If you're in prison, you can vote, you vote by mail. And then other states, as soon as you're released from prison, your right is restored. In Florida, for example, you have to be released from prison, complete parole and probation, and you have to pay back all of your criminal debts, your financial criminal debts. And in some of the most recent court cases, just in the last couple of years, people arguing in favor of these laws have said, you know, if somebody has not paid back their financial debt, they haven't demonstrated that they've reformed and that they're ready to keep contributing to society, that they haven't paid their debt yet. Right, they're still in debt for their crime is an argument that people would make. And perhaps it's self-help, perhaps it's self-evident, but what are your what's your kind of criticism of those kinds of arguments about rights and responsibilities? And, and another argument that people sometimes make in favor of restricting voting rights for people with criminal convictions is kind of alluding to, well, they must have bad preferences. You know, if we let them vote, then they're going to vote for awful things. And I, I think it's a little bit silly uh, to think you know, people coming out of prison are going to want crime everywhere on the streets. Uh, a lot of those opinions are based on racial stereotypes. Uh, they're based on race-based fears. And the idea, and even if people in prison, people released from prison do have different opinions, perhaps about redistribution or criminal policy, that's kind of the heart of what democracy is, right? is that we all have unique experiences and in a democratic country, we come together and we aggregate all of our experiences and think that together we're going to do better than we would individually. And if we're cutting out the experiences of a whole subset of our population, we're losing their input. Mm. There's some evidence that people with criminal convictions might have slightly different preferences on some topics. And it, but even if that were true, that's probably because they have unique life experiences. And if we want to have a democracy that's informed by everybody in the population, we would want all of those experiences expressed in our electoral outcomes. So in practice, how does voting for, for prisoners or voting for former prisoners work? Because there's two dimensions to this here. There's people who are currently in prison and whether they should be given voting rights and how you actually deliver them voting rights. And then there's obviously people who've also left prison and have a former conviction. Yeah. Um, so I mean, the, the trickier part, I guess, would be if states or countries wanted to allow people in prison to vote because you just have to navigate that within the prisons. In America, the two states that allow people to vote in prison, Maine and Vermont, have them vote by mail. So they would register based on their last known address and they would get a ballot and fill it out and send it back. Um, I don't see any reason why they couldn't do that elsewhere as well. 
there's a bit of a controversy where right now, if you vote in prison, you would vote based on your last known address. One concern is if you didn't do that and had people register based on the address of the prison, then the population of the prison would be sometimes bigger than the rest of the population in that town. That's, a, that's something, that's something, an argument that I've heard, but that's obviously easily fixable but on the basis that you're using previous address. Um, yeah. So you're not going to create some unusual uh, population distribution as, as, as a result of them. Yeah, exactly. That's, uh, that's something that could potentially be problematic if you had them register in the prison. Yeah. But if you use the place where they're from, uh, their last known address, which is what people would, you would do if you were living in a different country, you would still right, be registered based on your last known address in the U.S., um, then there's no problem about yeah that un an unusually large population. Yeah, and, and postal voting. Sorry, and, and postal voting is the obvious solution there. So in practice, everyone's just given a given a postal vote, and they're able to to post that back ahead of the election, and, and that seems to work quite well. Yeah, I would think postal voting would be the easiest, um, especially because the ballots are going to different states uh, or different jurisdictions. They would have different ballots, um, yeah. so by mail would be easiest. And for people who are not in prison, they would vote just like anybody else who's not in prison. Right? Mm -hmm. the, the only way, the way to implement that would be to stop preventing them from voting, uh, yeah. to, to not take their votes away to begin with. So what effects does re-enfranchising uh, former prisoners have, according to the evidence? Well, there's a lot of effects. Uh, so first, I mean, we can look at voter turnout. Evidence does suggest that that population votes less on average than people who were never in prison, but they don't vote 0%. So voter turnout would go up. Uh, there could very well be changes in electoral outcomes in some places. Um, and also beyond electoral outcomes, which again, I would say are huge, um, there's also big effects at the individual level. And um, that's where a lot of my own personal research comes in, is looking at how being disenfranchised, right, um, which means being denied the right to vote, how that affects people and their identity and the way they look at themselves. And there's a really big stigma that comes with not having the right to vote. In the criminal justice system, we have so many rituals that emphasize that you're a criminal, that you are arrested, you're put in handcuffs, you're sentenced before a judge, you're strip searched, you're given a number, you're put in a cell, you're referred to as an inmate or maybe by your number. And when people are released from prison, they'll often talk about, you know, they're released in a pair of flip flops with their clothes and a brown paper bag. And now they just have to figure out the rest of their life with no home and no job and social ties that have been harmed. But just even beyond that life change, being permanently disenfranchised, it makes people feel like second class citizens. It's embarrassing to admit you don't have the right to vote. It's something that follows you for the rest of your life. It kind of it can perpetuate that criminal identity and make it harder for people to think of themselves as citizens who are just as deserving as everybody else. So I did a series of experiments um, in this particular area in Ohio and Virginia, which are two states where people lose the right to vote, but get it back at a certain point in time. Uh, and what I did is I leveraged misinformation uh, because the state laws vary so much. There's a lot of confusion. And I was able to find people whose right to vote had been restored, but did not know yet that their right to vote had been restored. I would survey them before and after an election and ask them a whole bunch of questions about information about politics and also just sort of pro-social, pro-democratic attitudes. And then after the first survey, I did an experiment. So I would sit down with people and I would inform them that their right to vote had been restored. Like I would sit with them one by one on one and show them the governor's website and demonstrate to them their right to vote had been restored, often for the first time in 10 or more years. And the reactions I would get from people were just extraordinary. Uh, people would cry 
they would be so excited. They'd say, I, I can't wait to tell my family. Can I put that on my resume? They would say, I feel like a citizen again. And you could just, you could feel it in the air. You could feel that this was something that made people feel so proud and so excited. And it was this weight being lifted. And then after the election, when I did the second survey, the data also demonstrated that what people who got this information, their identity and their opinions transformed. They became more informed about politics. They reported higher trust in government and democratic institutions, which is one of the basic things required for democracy. Right? We need people to believe that institutions are fair in order for people to agree to let those institutions be in control. Uh, but when people found out their right to vote had been restored, they had higher trust in democratic institutions. And they also had higher confidence in their own abilities, at their own civic abilities as humans, as citizens. And one of the big upshots is that all of those attitudes and opinions are big predictors of successful reentry, right? of whether or not somebody goes back to prison, which the majority of people do. Mm. Right? One of the big predictors of whether you go back to prison or stay free in society for the rest of your life is pro-social norms, trust in others, confidence in yourself, um, civic identity. And so what those results suggest is that right, restoring people's right to vote, it's going to increase turnout. It might change outcomes and make them more representative. And for those individuals, it's changing their identity for the better for the rest of their lives. And I assume, therefore, as standard, people aren't usually told this at the point at which they, they exit a prison, that they are you know, their voting rights are restored. There's no systematic reduction of information for them. Uh, that also varies. Right. Very okay. state. Some states will give you a voter registration form when you're released from prison, if you have the right to vote. It's a difficult time because when you're released, that's when you're trying to get a new driver's license, a place to live, a place to work. There's a lot that people are trying to establish all at once. Mm -hmm. uh, but also in some states, you don't have the right to vote right away. Right? In Ohio, you do, the one state I did the experiment in. But in Virginia, people could be out of prison for 10 or 20 years and still did not have the right to vote. Um, it wasn't until the governor signed executive orders restoring people's right to vote. Mm. So it's two things, then. It's, just the, it's the actually the voting rights, but also the information that they receive at some point as part of part of leaving, leaving prison. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Within the United States, because there's so much variation and states are changing their policies so rapidly, the misinformation is so high. Um, it's high among citizens and it's also high in the election office. And there was once an academic study where they would call election offices and ask them about the voting rights in their state. And they found 30% of election office workers gave inaccurate information about voting rights in their state. And so you think like if the people in the election office have the wrong information, wow, yeah. how can you know, a citizen who's just come out of prison, and especially when it varies from state to state, right? You might move from a state where you weren't allowed to vote and now you can mm. in a different state. And, and is that deliberate misinformation, do you think, perhaps from you know political parties or political actors trying to uh, give people the wrong information on purpose or perhaps there's some underlying bias or perhaps electoral officials not thinking of it as being important? I mean, it's perhaps difficult to prove in any direction, but... Yeah, I guess I, I think probably three things. So there's probably some deliberate misinformation. And I do think that there's probably some misinformation that's driven by bias. If you're not sure, maybe you assume in the direction that matches what you think should be or, or what you're used to. Yeah. Um, so people might give misinformation accidentally because of bias, sure. Uh, and a lot of people are just are misinformed because it's confusing. 
right? The laws change in the last few years. So many different states have changed their laws. Mm. Even in Virginia, governor wrote an executive order and it restored voting rights to over 100,000 people all at once. And that order was challenged in the courts. And the courts ruled that he did have the right to restore voting rights to all of those individual people, but he couldn't do it in one executive order. He had to do it through over 100,000 individual executive orders. Which is practically administratively impossible, I would assume. Administratively very taxing, yes. <laughs> so all of these people got the right to vote back, but then their right to vote was taken away again. And then the governor created a new process where they processed more than 10,000 executive orders every month, restoring voting rights one at a time. And people would get this letter in the mail saying their voting rights had been restored if they're at the same address. It's, I mean, that's very confusing, right? People have the right, they didn't have the right to vote, then they did, then they didn't again, and then they did, but in batches of 10,000 apiece each month. Yeah. And we're struggling to get people to, to turn out to vote. So I think any, any extra uh, administrative complexity is going to, is not going to have a tremendously positive effect at all. Um, are there any problems that this might cause or, or situations perhaps where this might not work? I think, I mean, personally, I would think the biggest problem is the problem of misinformation. Voting when you do not have the right to vote is a crime and people go to prison for that, right? So the risks of getting it wrong are so big. And a lot of people, if they have 1% uncertainty of whether they have the right to vote, they're not going to do it because they don't want to go back to prison. Right? That's not worth the risk. Um, so I, th I think misinformation is the biggest hurdle. As far as allowing people to vote, it, it's just it's restoring the right to vote, just like every other person, every other citizen in the society already has. So yeah, any fears about what that might do to electoral outcomes, I, I think those are mostly based in racism or race-based fears, kind of this idea of what you think criminals want. But none of the evidence suggests that that would happen. And yeah, I, I would think that the biggest, like that, if these laws were going to be changed, they would have to be accompanied by massive information campaigns and it would have to be consistent information from both sides, or if we're talking outside America, all the sides, um, to give consistent information and let people know exactly what their rights are. I think that that would be absolutely critical because a little bit of misinformation is very much debilitating in this particular area because the stakes are so high. And you, and you mentioned other countries there. So who should be implementing this? Um, is it the case that you know democracy is universal, electoral rights should be universal, so every country should be implementing this? I mean, part of me is asking here, though, because voting rights has been uh, an issue for prisoners in the United Kingdom and the UK government's been in conflict with the European Court of, of Human Rights about whether it, it is in breach um, of this. And governments, successive governments have been very reluctant to um, grant uh, voting rights to people inside prisons. So is it just the case that this should, this should basically happen everywhere? Or are, are there any reservations that we can make to them? Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the question you would want to ask yourself is that why is it that if you think people in prison should not be allowed to vote, why is it that you think that? Right? What, what is it that you think motivates that opinion? All of the evidence suggests that giving people civic education and civic training in prison is going to help them become better citizens. It's going to help them feel more included in democracy uh, and will help them be better able to re-enter society when they're released from prison. Is it a punitive thing? Is it Are you punishing people by taking away their right to vote? It's a question of, is, is that doing good for anybody? Right? Is that actually helping society? Is it helping those people? 
Yep, no, it's pretty. You answered that question perfectly. Thank you. So, in the United Kingdom, one of our former prime ministers uh, said that he felt physically sick at the idea of prisoners voting, and it was obviously a very kind of populist ploy in some ways, kind of an appeal to to the wider electorate. I mean, where, where does public opinion tend to kind of come in on this topic? Sure. Yeah. There's. I don't know. Um, I'm not familiar with public opinion polls in the UK. Um, I've seen quite a few polls in the United States. I've done a few of my own as well. Right now, there's abs- there's absolutely majority support for allowing people to vote once they're released from prison. Um, I think it's maybe around 60 or 70 percent. Um, the support is much higher when you're talking about people who have been released from prison or people who have completed parole and probation. But even when looking at people in prison, support for voting rights is actually quite high. Many, many states in the last several years have passed policies that have increased voting rights, um, either given people the right to vote in prison or reduced the constraint so their right to vote is restored right upon release versus having to wait five or 10 years. What I found in my research is if you look at people who think that we should not let those with criminal convictions vote, if you look at the characteristics of those people, the biggest predictor is anti-Black attitudes. Uh, people who agree with statements that suggest racial resentments or racial animus. People who, it's because in the United States, a lot of people tend to associate crime with race. And when people think of criminals or they think of people in prison, a lot of people have this image in their head. Uh, For many people, that's a racial image. And when it's, even when it's not a racial image, when people think of prisoners, you think of murderers and rapists and people doing awful, awful things. And the reality, at least in the United States, is the overwhelming majority of people in prison are nonviolent offenders. Mm. I think only 6% of people in our prisons are there for violent offenses. Uh, A majority of them are there for drug offenses. Um, There's a lot of crimes associated with poverty, things like theft. Not saying any of those are good things, but the, the image we often have when we think of a prisoner is, you know, a mass murderer. Yeah. And that's yeah. that's not the typical prisoner. Typical typical prisoner in the United States, I would suspect in the UK, it's, or maybe you can tell me, if, is it similar? A majority are drug cases and also theft, like minor theft cases, crimes of poverty. Yeah. And so it sounds as if part of the work to be done, therefore, is public campaigns in favour of voting rights, but also public campaigns in terms of anti-racism as part of this as well. Um, yeah, yeah, a, b- a big part of the campaign work that's being done now in the United States is trying to humanize the human beings affected by this. Yeah, uh, there was a really brilliant spread in the New York Times recently. In Florida, there's a lot of people who the only thing preventing them from voting is money, like unpaid debt. And they, the New York Times, did this spread where it was people and they had name tags, but instead of a name, it said how much money they owed. And it's like if I pay off this money, then I can vote. Yeah. And just really just, yeah, trying to humanize and show, have interviews with people who explain I'm a real person. This is the effect it's having on me and my family. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true, right? That misinformation is big. And then also just educating people about the human element behind this issue. Yeah, it's a powerful message, isn't it? Focusing on the humans and the individuals. This is a podcast and uh, it'd be difficult for people to see. But the um, when you started talking about those experiences of, of how... People were given their voting rights back and they were informed about this. Your, your face lit up very much by from those experiences. Um, so I guess the final thing then is where can we find out more? So academic publications, for example, that people might want to read or uh, other, other sources of information that might be useful. Sure. Um, 
Yeah, so I, I have one published article right now, uh, which talks about some of my research in Ohio and Virginia, and that's in the journal Policy Studies, and it's also published as a book chapter um, in a combined edition from that journal. I think I might know which book this is, but... Uh... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which Toby James are also published in and helped organize. Um, so yeah, that, that article out, I have several others that are in the works. Um, if people are interested, if they contact me, I'd be happy to send drafts of some of my other articles in progress, um, including some of the public opinion studies. Um, a couple of groups that I would recommend, um, I really like the Brennan Center. They tend to have really nice maps and tables that are accessible. I use them for my academic research and I also assign them to my undergraduate students. I think they're very accessible to a very wide audience. And they write really nice reports that are just a nice, good summary with a lot of um, essential details that I think are very accessible. Also the Brennan Center tracks a lot of the ongoing litigation. Like right now, if, if we're looking at what it would take to restore voting rights to people with criminal convictions in America, it's happening a lot state by state, but it's really hard in some states. And there's also appeals that are going through the courts through federal litigation. And the Brennan Center is tracking those lawsuits um, and the progression of those lawsuits. So that's another place I would recommend looking. Brilliant. Victoria, thank you ever so much for being um, on the show. We really appreciate all these insights. Um, so thank you ever so much. Great. Thank you so much, Toby. I look forward to hearing the podcast. <laughs>